Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Think about your BFF. That's best friend for life. Now, imagine if that for life part was a deliberate co-creative commitment. You're free to date other people if you're into that kind of thing, but you put each other down as your emergency contact. You live together. You may even raise kids together. Today, meet people who are in what's called platonic life partnerships, or PLPs, and get a better understanding of what it is and what it isn't. You know, we are still partners and life partners, Mm -hmm. and just because we don't romantically or sexually like and interact with each other doesn't mm. change the level of commitment that a lot of couples have. Mm. So I'm Kyone Wolf. That's coming up next on Audacious, right after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. One way to describe a great relationship is the way Bruce Lee once put it. Love is like a friendship caught on fire. But what about when the friendship is caught on fire and it isn't sexual? Today we're exploring the world of platonic life partners, or PLPs. In a nutshell, PLPs are two or more people who are each other's primary partners. The way people often relate to spouses or romantic partners, only sex doesn't factor in. The relationship could combine qualities from friendship, marriage, and even polyamory. That's romantic relationships with multiple partners. And people of all sexual orientations can form PLPs. Some live together, have joint bank accounts, some even get married and raise kids and pets. The practice of choosing platonic friends as your primary relationship is not necessarily a new thing. So-called Boston marriages was the name for it in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, notably in Boston for some reason, but likely elsewhere. So what would happen is these single, financially independent women would understand that their natural next step would be to marry and have children with a man, and they'd be all like, yeah, no thanks. And then they just live with their bestie instead. And yes, okay, some of them were totally lesbians, but not all of them. Today, the hashtag platonic life partner has been used more than 12 million times on TikTok alone. And you're about to meet five of them. Joe and John are two gay men living in Texas. And April and Renee are two bisexual women living together in LA who've been near impossible to separate since they were kids. But we're going to kick off this show with a conversation with Raina Cohen. She's a producer and editor for NPR's Enterprise Storytelling Unit, working across Embedded, Invisibilia, and Rough Translation. She's also a writer working on her first book about PLPs, partially because she's in one. She talked about it in her Atlantic article from October of 2020 titled, What if Friendship, Not Marriage, Was at the Center of Life? I asked her to tell me about her PLP and why she felt compelled to write about it. About five years ago, I met the person who I now consider my best friend. And especially in the first couple of years of our friendship, when we were living a five minute walk from each other and saw each other most days of the week, and we're exchanging voice memos multiple times a day, and BCC each other on emails, and you know we're at each other's offices and all of that. Um, it just felt like we had a friendship of a level of intensity that I had not experienced before, and felt to both of us that even using the term best friend wasn't quite adequate for the significance that we had in each other's lives and just sort of the depth of how we felt about each other. And um, it very much felt to me like I had fallen in, that I had fallen in love with her the same way that I had fallen in love with my husband, but neither of us had a kind of sexual interest in each other. We're both interested in women, but like it wasn't that it wasn't directed at each other. So it didn't feel also like we were kind of repressing ourselves um, and that there was something else that was going on. And I was I mean, originally, I just, I think, very much motivated by my own experience in this kind of friendship, I wanted to write about them to to help people know that they exist and validate them for people who had felt misunderstood. 
Um, and then I think over time, I've just gotten more interested in how these sorts of friendships can kind of reflect back a lot of things about society that are hard for us to notice. And because these friendships so closely resemble romantic relationships that are treated differently, they just pose a lot of questions that I hadn't, or that I think not that many people have confronted. Language plays a really big role in all this, especially as we've been producing this show, we've come up against different words for what we're talking about, different phrases. Um, some things we've we've run into are platonic life partners, um, romantic friendships, there are QPRs, queer platonic relationships, and probably more. Where do we start with what we call this? And what does it matter what we call this? The project for me has tracked changes in language. So I started off being interested in romantic friendship and trying to find modern day romantic friendships. Um, I was particularly interested in the kind of affection, effusion that was very familiar in my uh, friendship. And when I was talking to people about, did they know anybody who had this kind of friendship? The romantic um, term was kind of alienating and, and didn't connect for some people. For some, it absolutely did. And they understood what it felt like to have the kind of um, exhilaration of romance be something that's part of a platonic relationship. But for other people, they said, well, they knew somebody who had a kind of friendship where they had this, they had a friendship that was extremely close, but it felt more like siblings. So as I've gone on, I moved away from the romantic friendship idea. And I think of it as one kind of possible type of very close friendship. And I think some kind of term that includes the word partnership, which I think all of the um, or several of the terms you've suggested have, um, is useful for indicating that these are people who are building a life together. And it's less about the kind of expression, like how, you know, how sweet and affectionate they are, and more about who is this person to them? Or is this the person that they live with, who is their emergency contact, who they make their decisions with? And I think that that is significant because so many of the privileges that are afforded to romantic relationships, I think are really rooted in the over, you know, the assumption that your romantic, your spouse, your romantic partner is your partner, is the person that you're building a life with. And I'm sure all of us have met romantic partners who are extremely romantic and, and sweet and who are, you know, much more companionate. Um, and that also can, you know, track with age. So, I think they're really interesting things to be asked about. What does it mean when you have romantic feelings in a non-sexual relationship? But it doesn't, but those, those are slightly different questions. And I think there are maybe even bigger ones that come from looking at and labeling this as a form of partnership. I imagine that there's a wide range of interpretations uh, when you say I have a platonic life partner what would you say are some of the biggest misconceptions or misreads that people have when you bring this up to them? There's just constantly the question of, are they having sex? Are they, I, I think it is very hard for people to compute that a relationship could be the central relationship in someone's life that deep and emotional and that sex is not part of it. You know, and I think if you ask anybody who is asexual, like they, this is an issue for anybody who's part of that community, but even people who, you know, have this kind of friendship and maybe also have a romantic partner, for instance, I mean, a lot of the people I've talked to, they have a romantic partner with whom they have sex. And then they also have this friend who is maybe equally or more important than their romantic partner. And even so, the possibility that these, that it is truly a non-sexual relationship is very hard for people to believe um, because I think we so closely associate romance, sex, commitment, those things are really bundled together. And I, and that is often the way people experience it, but it is not always what people's experiences are. And that's probably um, the kind of biggest question or bit of resistance that I hear. Yeah, I bet there's always this tension that, you know, you face too, as somebody who's also interested in women and your best friend is a woman, but you're not attracted to her, you don't desire her in that way. It's almost like I, I can see the default being like, well, it's just a matter of time before something snaps with one of them and they want the other. And that's just inevitable because that's the way it goes. Yeah. I mean, when I came out to my mom as bi, she assumed that I was having a sexual relationship with my best friend, that that was sort of what was happening. And I 
I was amused, but I, you know, I think there's a really generous way to look at this. There, for some people, it it is just a kind of um, inability to imagine a non, you know, a non-sexual relationship. Um, I think particularly when people are looking at the past, but also in contemporary relationships who are from queer communities, that they are really motivated to do the reverse of straightwashing, that they want to make sure that if there are people who appear to love each other, that we are acknowledging those as queer relationships. And when I looked at, you know, for, for a chapter that I wrote about history, there's a lot of contestation over who is, you know, whether a relationship is a friendship or if it was a queer relationship and how do you define that ranging from David and Jonathan to um, the, you know, the, the dean at Howard University who had a very close female friend. So I, I think that there is a desire to kind of correct the past, but I think it's useful to not assume that every relationship is sexual. I think there are actually a lot of queer spaces that are uh, interested in not just sexual relationships, but um, the other kinds of close connections that that get overlooked when we channel so much of our energy as a society into marriage or marriage-like relationships. That's what I feel really is sort of the kernel of all of this when I, you know, we've been interviewing these people for this show and talking with you and all the research that I've done and my team has done on this. It just seems like the the thread underneath all of it is the binaries of everything are slipping away. And for some people, that is really painful. Like, I am a gay woman. I'm 41. I grew up, I didn't think I'd be able to get married. And so I wanted marriage to one person in a monogamous relationship. And that ended up not being, not happening. <laughs> the, the, the marriage ended. And when I think about how polyamory is more and more accepted and more and more talked about, and we're talking about, you know, uh, communal living situations, which bleeds into this as well. It's and then we've got, of course, people who are non-binary in terms of their gender and trans, and it just feels like everything is becoming less binary. And it's, I think, in the grand scheme of things, very exciting, very overwhelming, and to many people, incredibly threatening. What do you say to those who would say maybe this is just too this is just too ambiguous. This is too broad. I can't process. If you don't have any goalposts, then how do you play the game? I think it's worth acknowledging that rules, guideposts are useful. For some people, the existing norm is the thing that fits for them. I think for lots of people, it doesn't. And it would be helpful to be able to step back and and kind of have the palette in front of us and figure out what fits you know, some people might not even want the palette. The palette is too overwhelming to have that many options. But for and and for some people still, they will look at it and still say, you know, I want the relationship escalator. But some people will find that either they want something else or that life does not turn out as we expect, you know, as you alluded to in your own life. And many of the people that I've talked to that they would not have expected to make, meet a friend like this. And sometimes it just happens spontaneously or mostly it really happens spontaneously, but in in certain cases, it's there's an opening in their life because they got divorced because you know they they never found anybody that they wanted to have as a romantic partner. They are widowed. I, I think it's useful to have multiple options, not just uh, you know so that when you're in your twenties or in thirties, forties or something in, in a stage where people are looking for a lifelong partner that you have that, but also when uh, life turns out differently and you need to pivot and have other, you know, I mean, other than maybe like trying to remarry again and again and again or something like that. As you've been writing your book, what what's really blown your mind? Because you went into it with your own personal experience and you did some history and some research, but now that you're like in the thick of it, what has really like thrown you for a loop, either on a grand scale or like one particular story? So the other story that I've been very immersed in um, has been of these two women who are in their 80s. And and these women have been friends for 50 years and kind of met uh, met at work and became in a really incidental way each other's family and have lived together for about 25 years and have been taking care of each other as they've aged. And I, I find their story really remarkable because at most they will call each other their best friend. 
Like they just like, I have, you know, I just feel like we'd have such a good friend. You know, that's kind of the, the limits of it. They are not concerned with the language. There's a kind of beauty to seeing people who are just living their lives in this way that is by definition unconventional and they are unfazed by it and don't see themselves as being trailblazers or doing anything uh, you know, special or unusual and can't understand why I have so many questions for them. And the fact that such a wide range of people could end up in this kind of relationship, like people who are, are kind of non-normative in all sorts of ways. And really it's that they're, they're ide- like, um, even if they're not brought into a platonic partnership by ideology, that uh, they kind of come out of it with a real, you know, sense of resistance to the nuclear family, for instance. And people who are just like, you know, just not thinking about any of that and um, want to live their lives. And that's kind of that. So I think that that's something that has stayed, uh, has, has just been on my mind quite a bit working on this. Yeah. Before we connected, I was cleaning my house and thinking about, you know, everything I wanted to make sure we talked about. And I was reflecting on how, you know, I, I grew up as a gay kid in the 80s. I came out in the 90s for the first time. And I remember thinking, like, can't this just be boring? Like as boring as any other person's sexual orientation. Like I, it's not everything about me and it doesn't define me like anything else doesn't. I just, I I look forward to the day when wherever I am in terms of sexual orientation, that it's boring. Do you think that is the future where this is just, just another thing people do and it's just another way people love each other and are there for each other. And uh, let's move on to the next episode of audacious. Hopefully 20 years down the line, it'll still be going. I think that these relationships have existed and will continue to exist. So it seems like the question is really about how well known are they? You know, when kids are 15, 16, are they thinking about not only dating, but also like, would they end up with a, with a platonic partner in, you know, in their future? Is it uh, a thing that people can act, like actively search for or if they have it, recognize what they have? Or if they rec- and if they recognize what they have, not feel self-conscious about it or not be kind of the subject of a lot of confusion and questioning and salacious comments. I think that remains to be seen, but I have a lot of optimism. I, I mean, I have Google alerts on various terms connected to um, this subject, and I've just gotten a lot more emails in the last basically year than I had previously. Um, and I think part of that is, you know, I think there have been various kinds of publications that have come out that point to people's interest in trying to understand these sorts of relationships and not view them as in this kind of gawking way. So I'm hopeful is the summary. Well, Raina Cohen, thank you very much for talking with me. Thanks for having me. When we get back, we do set each other as emergency contacts, but we won't necessarily be recognized as each other's next of kin. In the law. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, which is something that we're looking into and why we're talking about this. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. The FDA has recently approved ZepBound, a new medication for chronic weight management. Dr. Davida Umashankar, Hartford HealthCare's System Medical Director of Medical Weight Loss, tells us more. ZepBound helps decrease hunger and increase satiety levels. Taking this medication for 72 weeks, people can see at the highest dosage approximately 48 pounds of weight loss. So definitely a powerful drug and another powerful tool that we have to utilize to help individuals who struggle with obesity. For those ready to explore their medical weight loss options, Dr. Umashankar has advice on the first most important step. I don't think anyone knows you better than your own primary care physician. So having that conversation whenever you feel ready is so important because these medications are quite powerful and do need to be monitored on a regular basis. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today we're talking to people who are in platonic life partnerships, or PLPs. See, there's this whole idea that I think 
most of us have in this era of what it means to partner up with somebody. You heard Raina use the term, the relationship escalator. You maybe start off as friends or casually dating. You engage in sexual experiences together. You commit to each other exclusively. Then you merge your lives and all the way that you merge your lives. And then at the top of the escalator, you have achieved a permanently monogamous marriage. Definitely, and for sure, for the rest of your life. But that old escalator? Not everybody's interested in riding it. And more people are realizing that that may not be the only way to feel fulfilled. You can find love, joy, and healthy commitment with your best friend. And sex doesn't have to be any part of it. April Lee and Renee Wong talk about their platonic life partnership on TikTok, where they have 55,000 followers. They grew up together in Singapore, but when they were 19, April moved to LA for college. The pandemic hit, they FaceTimed a bunch, and realized. What if it's you that I want to like spend my life with? And we started letting ourselves think further into our friendship in a way that was usually reserved for lovers mm. um, or romantic partners. And then the pandemic hit. And then it was really clear that if we were to die right now, we would rather die together. And it just became so clear. And we just started to make steps towards getting her to move to L.A. And then when she did, that's essentially when we say our platonic life partnership started. Yeah. What would you say is the difference between a BFF, a bestie, ride or die and a platonic life partner? I mean, the simple way that we like to put it is just the added commitment, because I think this connection, like what she and I feel is not exclusive. Mm -hmm. You know, people feel this way for their best friends all the time, especially women, I think, you know, because we're able to find and build that kind of emotional intimacy and like really deep platonic intimacy with each other. But we are conditioned to think that we are supposed to reserve that life partnership role for a romantic partner. Mm. Um, so that's where the difference is, is that me and Renee commit to each other in a life partnership, a financial mm. partnership, a domestic partnership. If we want to have children, we see us raising children together, me and her. Mm. And that's typically something that best friends don't do. They move on and date their own people, marry their own spouses, have their you own. Have like family. mimosas on a Sunday or something. All right. Exactly. 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 I've listened to a lot of interviews with you two in preparation for this one. And one of the things that really sticks out for me is the way in which you two are very good at communicating with each other. And that makes me think about boundaries. Now, it, it, it feels like the idea of boundaries, which is, you know, knowing how you want to be treated and then articulating how you want to be treated and using communication to update each other if these boundaries shift sounds easy, right? But that doesn't come naturally to every person and certainly not to every couple or group of people. So how do you prioritize boundaries? Mm. That's a great question. Wow. Yeah. Um, And we might not have been asked that before, or we might have a different answer because it's been so, you know, it's, we've been living together now for almost a year. Yeah. Yeah. So boundaries has been coming up more and more frequently yeah um, and it's just a, a constant question that we always choose to help examine our relationship to make sure that we don't slip into codependency and make sure that we maintain the self and the relationship as well like because to do one you have to do the other yeah and I think in the past I might have been more people pleasing but now much more so we are also so sensitive to each other that we allow ourselves to draw that boundary when needed and to have conversations about being unsafe in a very safe space. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think it's really about choose guilt over mm. resentment. Um, and a lot of the times I think Renee as a people pleaser feels afraid to bring things up because she's afraid that it's going to make me upset mm. or it's going to destabilize the relationship in some way. Mm. Um, but it's first me letting her know that it's okay to choose you and I'm not going to fault you for that. Exactly. In fact, I'm going to thank you for it because I don't want you to be resentful of me or to put me in that position exactly. of resentment. Like, And so we don't want to have resentment for each other. So yeah. we know it on our ends to make sure that doesn't happen. We first have to be honest and 
you know, have these uncomfortable conversations to begin with. And I feel like this relationship has allowed me to practice setting boundaries because that is a practice that you have to constantly keep doing. And I feel like through just being here, I've learned how to set boundaries in my other relationships and my work and all those kind of things. And it's just, it's just, it just shows how having safe spaces within relationships to allow yourself to do that allows you to learn how to really stand strong within yourself to do so in other relationships as well. Yeah. Yeah. We're so healthy. (laughs) You mentioned the word codependency and sometimes it's hard to define what that may look and feel like between all these different kinds of relationships. So how do you define codependency in the context of being in a PLP? Hmm. That's a great question. Another original question. Yeah. That's another banger. We're digging deep. I love it. <laughs> um, <laughs> by Kion Wolf. Um, <laughs> codependency is just such a wide umbrella term and it can be like you know like we we take measures to not be codependent in a lot of ways like simple things like you know if we were apart from each other like I was just in Singapore for like a month you know and to make sure that she Renee was being able to function without me at in the house like like just how she has other people to lean on because there's a time difference and if she needed someone I might not be able to be there for her having a support system outside of me, having time to herself and actually enjoying it and not just distracting herself. And I do the same. And we also ensure that we don't have financial codependency because Mm. I think it's easier to do in a relationship where it's not a heterosexual relationship, because I think like it's, it's harder for you to fall into that typical breadwinner and homemaker role Um, But typically when that happens, what you see is like, if anything were to happen, that person with um, who's the homemaker who might not have like a stable income or whatever, that person's like if the breadwinner decides to leave them and we are trying to protect each other from that possibility at all happening. Mm. Or if I had to leave the country or whatever, like she's not financially dependent on me, I'm not financially dependent on her. However, that being said, we still are interdependent with our finances and with our emotions and Mm. all of that, meaning we allow a healthy amount of leaning on each other, but in a way that doesn't make the other person dependent. Mm. Or or feel burdened and have to take on additional responsibility that is not within their capacity. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. So it's, it's more about enriching each other's lives and pooling together and sharing resources than it is about splitting resources. Yeah, Yeah. Right. Yeah. Another important consideration that I'm sure you hear questions about is if one of you meets somebody that you're attracted to, you start dating, um, is the idea that the person you meet needs to know, like, they come second? Is that the hierarchy arrangement that you have? It's kind of almost similar to polyamory in the sense of maybe you have a primary partner and that's the person you've committed to that you're choosing to commit to constantly and I think in terms of especially living together exactly and I think in terms of like having a romantic partner like I mean April's dating someone right now I think it's just knowing that at the end of the day, we're choosing each other for long-term life partnership um, decisions. We um, we are accountable to each other in that way um, versus our romantic partners who are there, um, who, can, who can come in and out of our lives. Um, and there is no end goal of companionship in terms of life partnership. Right. So there's yeah. no relationship escalator. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. So it, I don't want to confuse that with that being that, like we're absolutely taking off commitment Mm. from the table for romantic partners. It's more so removing a deadline or an end goal, right? It's kind of just letting things flow naturally and taking the Mm. pressure off of romantic relationships. Mm. Allowing the connections to be what they are and to evolve how they they naturally do. Yeah. Mm. Right now, if one of you were hospitalized the other wouldn't necessarily be on the in case of emergency list, right? Yeah. I mean, I think we we do set each other as emergency contacts, but we won't necessarily be recognized as, as each other's next of kin. In the law. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, which is something that we're looking into and why we're talking about this, um, because I think 
if I were to go to the hospital, I'm like, hey, that's my roommate. That's my best friend. It just doesn't have the same kind of pull as that's my wife, mm. you know, and that kind of sucks because I've known her half my life. She's family to me. Yeah, I would trust her to pull the plug more so than anybody else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what would you like to see happen in, a, in a, an ideal world? How would the law accommodate you? You know, I think there are things out there already, perhaps just not as, you know, commonly utilized like domestic unions and domestic partnerships and things like that. But I would like for something to be equivalent uh, to the traditional marriage for platonic partners. You know, we are still partners and life partners. Mm -hmm. And just because we don't romantically or sexually like interact with each other doesn't Mm -hmm. change the level of commitment that a lot of couples have Mm. so and I think like in the eyes of the law marriage is originally it's supposed to be for life partnership but now marriage is very much tied to the connotation of being a romantic relationship yeah love exactly who do you love most in this world yeah yeah pick one exactly (laughs) (laughs) you better not have messed it up so you're in for a whole lot of legal trouble (laughs) uh preach yes um I want to talk about the one. And I think when people consider platonic life partners, they may think, yeah, that'll be cool for you until you or one of you finds the one. And the one, the concept of the one isn't even just in terms of romantic partnerships. It's also something that could make its way into platonic life partnerships. So I want to play this clip that you posted about a week ago that gets at that and how that affects everything else. Why my platonic life partnership has been so freeing for both Renee and myself is because we finally liberated ourselves from the urgency or the need to find the one. The whole point is that you're no longer needing to search for someone um, just because society tells you that's what is expected of you to feel complete or grown up. And we have to be careful because that applies to searching for a platonic partner as well. It's ideas like finding the one that Renee and I deconstructed which led to us letting all our connections and relationships progress naturally, which then led to us seeing the potential of our friendship becoming an actual partnership. And maybe you don't have a friend like that in your life right now, and that's okay. The whole idea is just to be open to it, even if it's not the norm. So I'd love to hear about how what you're looking for in a romantic partner, if you are looking for romantic partners, is different now, that it's not necessarily for companionship. And how seeking the one isn't necessarily the right way to go in any relationship. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Like platonic or even romantic. But yeah. yeah. Personally, I think I went through a journey that it made me realize that I idealized romance, like the idea of romance and the idea of what a romantic partner could be more so than any of my partners, like in the sense that I would love the idea of love with them more than I loved them. Um, And that was a deconstructing that I had to do in my own brain. And and PLP has helped me do that because it helped me realize the significance and importance and, you know, value of platonic love. Mm -hmm. I removed romantic love from the top of the hierarchy of all kinds of love. And that made way for me to see my romantic partners for themselves and who they are, the connection that we have, the way they make me feel more so than a future with them, what Mm -hmm. they could offer me in the future, what role they could play for me in the future. Now that's, I don't want to say irrelevant, but I'm a lot more in tuned in my romantic relationship now of like, what am I feeling right now? How do I feel about them right now? As Mm -hmm. opposed to we got to get over this fight because then we might break up. And then if I break up, I'm going to have to start looking for another partner again. And Mm -hmm. and all all I need you to be the one. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I'm removing that. I'm really being able to look at them and appreciate them and also see their flaws Mm -hmm. and not just ignore their flaws, which I think is important. And sometimes when you idealize romance, you ignore flaws. Mm. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I just feel like I'm a lot more present in my romantic relationships and a lot more focused on the right now. I think for me, it's just, it's allowed me to re-examine every connection that just comes my way to just see how it plays into my life 
whether it's romantic or platonic or whatever I'm just allowing it to be a connection more so than a relationship I think at the end of the day and I think um, with dating like I don't have specific goals in mind in terms of milestones I need to achieve and therefore it allows me to um, it allows me to um, not to be more selective but to just to yeah more intentional with just choosing who I decide to give my time and energy and spirit to yeah how did you solidify it was it one conversation and all of a sudden you knew what you were and the name for it platonic life partners was it a series of conversations what was that moment it's really I think it really is a series of conversations and external things that just affect us personally and like like went together, together yeah. yeah there wasn't that one moment where we're like okay this is it like you didn't, that, ha- you didn't have a, like a date and a calendar you can go back to and be like this was the day we decided to be plps yeah like we don't have it we didn't have an anniversary now our anniversary is the day i first moved to la because yeah. that's a big moment that we yeah. can be like oh yeah this is the moment we really solidified our our relationship by me moving across the world to be together right yeah yeah I don't know it's like I think that's the whole beauty of our relationship is because it's so fluid and so Mm. natural there was never a moment like kind of like what happens in a lot of relation romantic relationships of like will you be my girlfriend will you marry me it was just choosing each other a little bit a little bit every day just like a little bit Mm. more every day and it's just slowly solidifying more and more and more. Or like it just being clearer and clearer in mind right. what it is. Right. Like we've yeah. always felt it, but now it's like, okay, this is what it is now. Mm-hmm. I, I I feel like when it comes to love in all of its beautiful, mysterious, gray ways, I want to have some certainty in it. Yeah. And I think maybe that's why I and so many people look for these goalposts and these wedding bands and these anniversary dates and these relationship statuses on Facebook so I can count on it, so I can rely on it, so I can know what to expect. But when I say these things out loud, I think, well, that's absurd. You know, like love doesn't work that way. Love is bigger than that. Yeah, love is about having faith. And I think it's hard to have faith sometimes when you don't when you when insecurities and doubts creep in and I think like the way I feel like at least in our relationship how we why we feel like it's so healthy is because we constantly show our appreciation for each other like we're always just like across the room like I love you or like I miss you yeah and it's just yeah the relationship itself gives us that that security security that you're saying yeah we're not looking for like um external you know, ways that, to mm-hmm. validate this relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I guess like the validation comes like internally within the relationship for you to really feel that security. I want to say when I love somebody, I love them freely. Like that's what I want to feel. But the truth is, if I'm being honest, the relationships I've been in, the marriage I'd been in, I loved like this. And for the radio, I'm, I'm clenching my hands. Mm. And really, a strong and healthy love is like this, with your hands open, right? Mm-hmm. You're not clinging to anything. It's that faith you're talking about. It's just pure. Exactly. Yeah. And I think with romantic relationships, they're tradi- traditionally, it comes <laughs> with a, a level of possession like the label of girlfriend, boyfriend, or like husband, wife. Yeah, like. I had to separate security and stability mm. from control. Mm. Like control was what gave me my security, like in a lot of my past romantic relationships. Mm. And I have no control over Renee. Mm. And yet I feel the most secure with her, mm. which is like the best lesson that I've received my whole life. And now I bring that into my romantic relationship. So that's completely changed too. Mm. Yeah. And, and and control comes from a place of insecurity, right? Mm. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and then you can dig deeper into that, you know, like why you wouldn't feel worthy. Mm. of being loved why you can't necessarily trust that love will stay unless you do something to make it stay right exactly 
Yeah, at the end of the day, I think it's communicating your needs of how of what you need to feel stable in a relationship, and each person is accountable to doing the work. Yeah, to doing the work because a relationship is constant work. Like we're constantly working on ourselves and on each other, and that's how we are able to work as a partnership. At the end of the day, yeah. Mm -hmm. When I think about the world in like fifty years, and maybe that's not enough time, and maybe that's way enough time. But when you think about the world in 50 years, do you have hope that platonic life partnerships are more normalized and embedded in this American, at least, society? I want to say yes, because of the reception that we've received mm -hmm. um, and the stories that people have shared um, with us about their own, you know, relationships and platonic partnerships or whatever else, other labels that they have like chosen for themselves that are kind of similar to us. Um, and just the amount of people that are now just talking about it, I think is a beautiful sentiment and it's very hopeful. But at the same time, we're talking about banning abortions right now in this country. <laughs> so, you know, America's like the time machine. We could be in 50 years time back to 1950. Who really knows? <laughs> now, a lot of people assume because it's got the word platonic in the label, then that means that romance is out of the question for you, but you've also used the word romance when talking about your relationship. So is there a place for romance and how do you define it? I think the term romantic in itself is so ambiguous. Like we've narrowed it to the point of being romantic for romantic relationships. I don't know how else to describe it, but yeah. we, we see our relationship very much romantic in the sense of us being so expressive with our love and yeah like, grand gestures and cheesy gestures yeah. and like romanticizing it and the way we talk about it but we don't make out or cuddle or yeah. you know so we don't know how to quantify romantic yeah i think yeah we just want to expand on the definition of what romantic yeah, is yeah there we go yeah yeah well april lee and renee wong thank you so much for talking with me Absolutely. Thank you, Thank Kyle you, and Wolf <laughs> and, and Jessica. Jessica Martinez. Yes. <laughs> we'll have links to their TikTok account at ctpublic.org slash audacious. After the break. You know, at this point, all these years go by, I see wedding invitations or whatever, and it's just Joe and John. It's funny. <laughs> I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. You're listening to the new investigative reporting podcast, In Absentia, which means you're interested in getting to the facts and uncovering the truth. If you'd like to help us continue our investigative work, consider making a donation. Visit ctpublic.org slash tap support and contribute today. That's ctpublic.org slash TAP support. Thank you for being a part of the Accountability Project. So, you've never donated to this station before? That's okay. Public Media Giving Days are a great time to make your first gift. Here's how. Give now at ctpublic.org slash donate. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. For today's show about platonic life partners, friends who commit to each other and often live with each other regardless of if they're romantically dating anybody else, I want to introduce you to John Carroll and Joe Rivera. Let me set the scene for you. Austin, Texas, 1989. John walks up to a gay bar and the flyer on the door says, Amateur male strip off, $250 cash prize. And I'm like, well, hell. And Joe was the MC. So he wins that night. So I said, well, you have to come back again and, and relinquish, <laughs> and relinquish your title. Your title. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll be back so, next week. John was true to his word. He came back. And they began working together in the Austin bar scene. Thus began the story of Joe and John's platonic life partnership. I asked him, how do they describe how they went from stripper competitions to work buddies to best buddies to, well, PLPs? I think I'm going to use the word evolution. It's not like you ever plan on this. It's just something that kind of rolled in. And in the early 90s, I had a lake house I rented and we would throw a lot of 
fun parties because you know being a bartender you kind of get a little sort of celebrity you know like status so you know everybody knows you and everybody <laughs> knew joe joe is another you know joe and john where everything was joe and john joe and john and we are all realizing we're getting older and we have each other and that's you know think about it this way if i'm dying who's going to be around my bed whether it be in the hospital or my own uh, hospice bed here at the house or i don't know and then what if my friends were dying before me? Am I going to be around their bed? You know, so I think I have all the answers now. And we live this life so that that will happen. Friendships need to be nurtured. When you use the word relationship, everybody thinks automatically, well, they are having sex, right? The relationships aren't just sexual. They're just they're how you connect with another person. When people ask you, like, so who are you to each other? How do you respond? You know, sometimes I'll write down on a piece of paper a domestic partner, like when you have to check a box for filling out a form or something like that, because we are domestic We partners. are. We live so, in I mean, the same house. We uh, take care we have, of each other. We, uh, we have two houses next door to each other. And, and, and that, that can... And, oh, let's say this. So you bought uh, a house. Joe's coming over to dinner every Sunday night, practically. And the house next door came for sale. We're, I live in North Austin. He is living in South Austin. And I says, why don't you just buy that house next door? Then you can just walk home after dinner. God, you know? And he said, okay. <laughs> now there's something that's important that I need to talk about for me that Joe is very worried about. You see in 2002, there's a party going on at my very own house and I found crystal meth and I'm hiding it from Joe. I didn't want him to know that uh, this is an everyday occurrence at this point, you know, and I, I carried this behavior on for another two years, I think until 2009. And so then I, I call his ex-partner, Steven, Steven, said, Steven uh, John is doing drugs and I don't think he's doing well. And our friend Jason Howell, who and I called Jason Howell, yeah. I love our friends. And I said, you know, what can we do? So yeah. he says, well, just keep track of what's going on. Yeah. So I got me some binoculars. Yeah, he I'm did. Next door. I'm next door. Just like in the movies. It's just like in the movies. You know, saying, okay, it's four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> three, three cars just pulled up. It's six o'clock in the afternoon. Two cars just pulled up. He, he was like, there's more traffic at your house than Mopac. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah. so I called Steven and the guys. I said, we need to do something about it. I said, yeah. So um, we decided to go to have an up. intervention on John. So we decided to have dinner. So we. I was, it was a lunch, and I thought I was showing up to a luncheon. I didn't realize I was showing up to my intervention. And I showed up, and it was funny because I look around the room like, "Yay!" And then I'm like, "Uh oh." oh and they were sitting down, and I was like, "Okay." And so did the intervention work? Well, Joe looks at me, and he's like, "John," and that's pretty much all he had to say. And, and then I said. Okay, I'm done. Where are you sending me? And they all looked at me like, what? But wait a minute. The intervention has said we're going to have to fight th fight this out with you and read our letters, and it's going to get dramatic. We all and had letters. Oh, yeah. Down they were ready to go. But Joe said, John, and that was it. Yeah. John, you have a partner named Tim. How do you deal with the hierarchy of your relationships? You know what I mean? Like, how do you – I don't – place each other within at this point now it's like family is, is one more important than the other or you know it is joe important joe's my oldest friend i mean just incredibly important in my life a family member is what i would call it you know hell i left i left him a, a what do you call it <laughs> yeah a life insurance policy so, so if i die <laughs> if i die suddenly i'm just saying okay <laughs> no but, you know, it's important to take care of, you know, our loved ones even when we're not here. And that's part of it. And But Joe was instrumental in getting me the help I needed in recovery at, in 2009. And coincidentally, now we have a sober house next door. John's old house, my old house was turned into a sober house for gay so, men. And we have all these guys next door. Uh, it's mixed now, but it's been gay for the longest time. But it's mixed is the way life is anyways. These guys, they run back and forth next door. So we kind of are like mom and pop sort of car. Joe, Joe being the mother, me being the father. That's our laughing roles there. Yes. To a bunch of people in, in life that are new in recovery and trying to figure their out. It was the first sober house for gay men in the United States. Uh -huh. So 
uh, we started getting got kids from all over the United States, like you know New York, San Francisco, mm -hmm. uh, Atlanta. They were coming in and staying at that house. So uh, all over the United States. So the got the, the house is still open. I said, John, just move in with me. Move it. I have a yeah. two-bedroom house. Move into the guest room, and you and I. Can and that's kind of where everything really extra took off because now we're cohabitating. And when you cohabitate with somebody, that's really where you find deeply how well you really, really get along. You know what I mean? Because you've got regular life going on, but then you have domestic stuff, cleaning, bills, whatever, normal life stuff. That, yeah. You know, and, um, and it works well. I mean, it the, works the house really next well. door is busy. We have, I mean, we, and the guys come and work for us. They yeah, work, they work or, I mean, they, they just, they just rent our yard. Odd jobs, it's beautiful. And they come and do our so. jobs. We, we help them get uh, interviews and stuff like that, so. When people see you together as two gay guys, yeah. do you often get the assumption people just assume, "Oh, you're together"? And if oh, if they no, do, it all happens the time. all the always, time. People always say, "You and you, you, you and know, your boyfriend John." I'm like, "You're yeah, I'm a boyfriend, but yeah, and, he's John." I mean, and we, you know, at this point, all these years go by. I see wedding invitations or whatever, and it's just Joe and John. It's funny. <laughs> How does that make you feel to see? Oh, I I love that because it's just like we are becoming um, what's it called um. A little matriarchal, patriarchal, if you will, for lack of better words, to others in our lives that, you know, and that's really what's important is the best legacy you can leave is how did you treat another person? And, and what did they take away from what did they learn from meeting you, from being a part of, you know, your life? Regardless of what you call your relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Well, John Carroll and Joe Rivera, thank you so much for talking with me. Thanks Thank for you. having. It was a pleasure. Absolutely. Audacious is always lovingly produced by me, Jessica Severin Martinez, and Katie Talarski, with help from our interns, Anya Grandalski and Mira Raju at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. Special thanks this week to Meg Fitzgerald for her production help. Subscribe to Audacious, and you'll always get to hear the show a day early. You can hear them all at ctpublic.org audacious or wherever you get your podcasts. Send me your reactions and stories about your platonic life partner or partners on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kion Wolf, or send an email to audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening. Yes, I get by.